I was sitting in a room filled with my fellow law students. We were all paying close attention to the lecture, our evidence professor, Michael Goldsmith. He looked down at the paper in front of him. We all knew it was his seating chart. He was looking for the name of his next victim. Mr. Cutler, he called out. I breathed a sigh of relief with the rest of my classmates, all except Rob Cutler, whose head snapped up as he answered yes. From 1993 through 1996, I attended law school at the J. Reuben Clark Law School on the campus of Brigham Young University. For those of you who don't know, law school is designed to make its students feel a constant state of anxiety. In order to train future lawyers to, quote, think like a lawyer, end quote, the professors force their students to read, digest, and prepare to discuss appellate court opinions in a class's particular subject area. On some days, students are required to read hundreds of pages to prepare for class. In class, the law professor will randomly call on a student to discuss a particular case assigned for that day. Generally, the professor will ask the student to recite the relevant facts, followed by the issue that the case is addressing, and then describe the analysis the court went through in coming to its decision in the case. While doing so, the law professor, who of course has years of experience in the particular area of law, will pepper the student with different hypotheticals, asking the student if the hypothetical facts the professor conjured up would have made a difference to the court's decision. It can cause significant stress, particularly if you're not prepared because you haven't read the cases. Some law professors are master teachers. Most, however, are not. Most were hired because they had a stellar academic record, clerked for the right judge, and now want to devote their life to a monastic existence of research and writing to try to influence legal developments in their chosen fields of study. On this particular day, in my second year of law school, I was in the evidence class taught by Professor Goldsmith. He was one of those rare professors who was an exceptionally gifted teacher. He was well regarded by all of his students and colleagues and had come to the law school after an illustrious career that included serving as the attorney for the New York State Organized Crime Task Force. He was also one of the authors of the textbooks that we were using in class. He would regale the class with stories of trial testimony of mafiosos as he explained the application of the rules of evidence. He was unflappable. Aggressive, funny, and demanding all at the same time. He was always in control of his classroom. Evidence was, of course, a critical class for those of us who wanted to spend time in a courtroom. Concepts that we had to understand were relevance, prejudice, and competence. In a trial, all evidence, with some rare exceptions, comes in through the sworn testimony of witnesses. A witness has to be mature enough to understand that he or she has an oath-bound duty to tell the truth 
and a lawyer has to be careful that a witness actually witnessed the events he or she is describing or wrote or received the document that is being offered in evidence. There are all kinds of evidentiary rules regarding this principle, including the hearsay rule that every person who has ever watched a legal thriller throws around as if they truly understand what it is. The secret to understanding hearsay is to understand that the most basic rule of witness testimony is that if a person didn't witness the event, he or she can't testify about it. If a lawyer is trying to prove that an event occurred by having a witness report what someone else told them, that is hearsay. There are lots of exceptions to this general rule. Exceptions people pay good litigators lots of money to understand. In this class, Professor Goldsmith was teaching us about the concept of prejudice. He explained that under the concept of prejudice, even if a piece of evidence is helpful to understand an issue that has to be proven in a case, the courts must still find that the evidence won't be so shocking that it will be prejudicial to introduce it to a jury. He began with what seemed like obvious examples. For instance, bringing the actual corpse to trial to prove that someone is dead would be prejudicial. It might be so horrific to see and smell the actual corpse that a jury might just convict out of disgust. That was when he called out Rob Cutler's name. This class was held in the largest classroom at the school. The room was a large amphitheater that held around 150 students, with a law professor on a raised platform at the bottom of the class. Rob was sitting around the middle of the classroom in full view of everyone. Assume that two people get in the fight that escalates pretty quickly, Professor Goldsmith began. The fight becomes violent and one of them bites off the finger of the other. The prosecutor brings the severed finger of the victim with him to court and begins the evidentiary foundation to show it to the jury. You are the defendant's attorney. What should you do? There was an audible gasp from the classroom. Professor Goldsmith was a little surprised and looked around. He seemed puzzled, but apparently concluded that the class must have had some very sensitive people in it. He was wrong, though. The class was filled with people who knew Rob Cutler. We had, after all, been his classmate for more than a year. We all wondered what Rob would do. His reaction was swift. Well, he began to answer, holding up his index finger. It was much shorter than the rest, as the half just above his knuckle was missing. Professor Goldsmith's face turned beet red as he stood there speechless. He clearly had no idea about Rob's missing finger before he called on him. The class exploded in laughter. It seemed like ten minutes before it finally subsided. I am Scott Crook, and welcome to my journey on the Crooked Path, a not-so-regular podcast of biographical stories about my not-so-interesting life. This is episode two of the hearsay season, entitled, Seeing Through the Glass Darkly. As everyone knows, all good biographies start with the stories of the early childhood of its subject. 
When a person is telling his own story, though, he is clearly an unreliable witness about the early events in his own life. He suffers from all sorts of problems. The most obvious is his maturity. Early memories are distorted by all sorts of things. The distance from the event at issue, the skewed perspective of a two-foot kid looking up at the apparently giant dining room table, and the difficulty in understanding complex words and phrases like spaghetti and ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies. Beyond that, there's the problem of knowing the complete context of the event. Where did the event that he remembers occur? Why was he there? Who else was there? For these details, the person relies on the memories of others and what he was told. Clearly, autobiographical stories of the early life of a person suffer from every evidentiary problem Professor Goldsmith warned us about in my evidence class almost 30 years ago. While the story may be relevant, the witness is burdened by the fact that his childhood memories were stored by an immature child who didn't understand everything around him, thus competency problems, whose memories may have been distorted by the shock created when experienced, thus prejudice problems, and who must rely on what others told him about the event to understand its context, thus hearsay problems. It is in this context that I begin to describe the earliest of my memories, seeing through a glass darkly, as Paul so famously said in 1 Corinthians. I cannot say with near certainty that anything I remember is perfectly in context or completely accurate. I rely on an unreliable memory and on what my parents told me that they remember. The earliest memories I have percolate up from my brain from the times we lived in Leighton, Utah. We lived there when I was between about six months old until I was almost three years old. Obviously, these memories will suffer from vagueness. For instance, I remember going down the stairs into the basement level of our split-level home in Leighton, and being very scared of the horrible, roaring, monster-like machine. I think it was the furnace. I vaguely remember following my mother down there for some reason and being very concerned that we would never make it back up the stairs alive. The next memory that I can conjure up was probably implanted there because of my lifelong hatred of having my picture taken. Come to think of it, it may be the other way around. I may have a lifelong hatred of having my picture taken because of this memory that pushes itself to the front of my consciousness every once in a while. Honestly, I'm a little leery of telling this story because while it really is innocuous, it seems to reveal most, if not all, of my quirky little hang-ups and idiosyncrasies. I remember going to what must have been a photography studio in very uncomfortable clothes. My shirt was stiff and felt like it was made of tiny pieces of straw. My skin was being poked and I was very itchy, especially around my neck. My mom kept telling me I looked handsome. But I didn't care much about how the stupid clothes made me look. I cared about the fact that they made me feel like I was slowly being dragged by my feet shirtless through a sandpit. I wanted to rip the clothes off my body. 
Then this woman who was unknown to me wanted me to stand up on some sort of raised platform that had no railing to keep me from falling off the edge. Now I know what you're thinking. Children don't care about safety. Children are oblivious to danger. That might be your kid, but it wasn't me. I hated heights. I still do. My parents were always telling me to be careful whenever I got near the edge of something. So I was dumbfounded when this unknown woman, stranger if that works for you, with my mom's permission, mind you, told me to get up on this small raised platform that had no railing anywhere and kept moving me to places that seemed awfully close to an edge that I almost certainly could tumble off with the slightest touch of my sister, who, by the way, seemed totally oblivious to the danger. Which brings me to the next item that caused me discomfort. This picture was going to be of me and my sister Pam. As I've told you before, Pam and I got along famously. We were buddies in every sense of the word. But I have always hated to be touched by people. It's fair to say that even though I might look all plump and cuddly, I am not and never have been. I hate when most people put their hands on me. This strange woman, who was going to be taking my picture, kept putting her hands on me to move me. Not only was she touching me, but she kept telling me to get closer to Pam and put my hand on Pam's shoulder or my arm around her. Or worse yet, for Pam to put her hand on my shoulder or put her arm around me. It was awful. Even in recounting the story... I want to retreat to my bedroom, turn off the lights, and listen to soothing music. Okay. I think I found the answer. I hate getting my picture taken now because of this experience. Not the other way around. Now, I know there was not much there, but these, I think, are my earliest memories from before I was three. Short unreliable, and for the most part, unremarkable. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the hearsay season of my journeys on the crooked path. Please join me next time as I tell more stories from the haze of my earliest childhood experiences. They get better and more complete, I promise. This is your incompetent and unreliable witness, Scott Crook, signing off until our next episode. See you soon.